the back of the auditorium reminded that roughly two years ago around this time that I was preaching in loneliness to a video camera as many of you were in your living rooms in your own form of loneliness comparative to what we're doing this morning, the collective song of the church and the the warmth and the welcoming of each other. There's so many means of grace that it's just good to be here. Um, happy Easter, by the way. Um, thanks for bringing the church into this building. If we haven't met yet, my name's Jamie, the pastor elder who most Sundays gets the privilege of preaching God's word. And it really is a privilege. And, and not just on the, the biggest days of the Christian calendar, which this most surely is, Easter Sunday. I, I don't know what comes to mind for you when you consider Easter Sunday, um, your past, your memories, your history. It's always been something of an enigma to me, particularly having grown up in the American South, the annual day when people come out in droves for, of all things, the purpose of celebrating the resurrection of God from the dead. That's unique, right? That's a, that's a peculiar thing to come together and celebrate. And if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, what we're doing is really bizarre right now. Singing to a con artist who's tricked us all into declaring his praises, his wonder, his glory. And yet we come together because we believe that Jesus truly has risen from the dead. For me, as a kid, it was always strange, though. Even in those out-of-the-church seasons, I, I couldn't seem to escape Easter Sunday, though I did manage to escape a Christmas Eve service or, or two along the way. And, and why Easter and Christmas, I remember thinking. Does God give bonus points for the high holidays of the Christian calendar? Do we get double mileage rewards for the journey to heaven? And if the resurrection is so important, why do so many churches only talk about it once a year? Is the doctrine of the resurrection something that, that's only to be taken out of the china cabinet for special occasions? Or does the doctrine of the resurrection have relevance in our everyday lives? I had all kinds of questions as a kid. Questions that, that perhaps you bring into this gathering this very morning. Maybe this is the last place you want to be, and yet for some cultural reason, you're here. Maybe you're happy to be here, but feel a sense of disconnect in terms of what a 2,000 years ago empty tomb has to do with your life today. Maybe you're here to do what you do every Sunday, namely worship a risen king who, if his risenness is true, must be worshiped. Whatever you bring into this gathering, this Easter Sunday, 2022, I'm glad that you're here. I wanna spend a little bit of time this morning taking a look at a relatively familiar passage of scripture, one that gets preached often in Easter gatherings like these, and yet has so much more to say about the resurrection of Jesus than perhaps first meets the eye. And so if you have a Bible, I'll go ahead and invite you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be in verses 3 through 5 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. You're welcome to grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage of scripture. Let me go ahead, as many of you are turning there, and pray for our time in God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for the life that fills this room right now as we celebrate the life of the risen Christ. The sound of little ones, the sound of the song of the church, the sound of welcomes and greetings. 
Thank you for this means of grace, what it is to come together on the Lord's Day, particularly this day, Easter Sunday. Lord, we are surely a church who seeks to celebrate the resurrection all the time, Sunday in and Sunday out. And yet I praise you again for an opportunity to do that this morning on a day that on the Christian calendar is unique. So I pray that as we sit with the scriptures in front of us, that you would help us to see the glorious truths representing the glorious realities that are ours because the tomb is empty. I pray that we would walk out of here, our hearts filled with hope. I pray that we would walk out of here with the deepest of humility and better understanding what you've accomplished on our behalf. I pray that we would walk out of here with hearts filled with praise. This is no doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrection, that's meant to remain in the realm of dead, cold orthodoxy. No, this is a song that must be sung. And so I pray that you would fan it into flame in our hearts this morning as we sit with your word. Spirit of God, we are desperate for you to move in power as we always are when we come together in spaces like these. And so we plead with you to do so. In the name of the risen Savior and King, Jesus Christ, I pray to the glory of the Father. Amen. So we're going we're gonna to do something a little different this morning. I've done this a couple of times, but it, it's not my typical MO as it pertains to walking through this passage of Scripture together. I want to I start from the middle of this morning's passage and then work our way out. And the reason for that is that it's in the middle of this passage that we see the language of Easter Sunday. If you look at verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's, that's Easter Sunday language. That's empty tomb language. That very phrase surrounded by some of the most wondrous truths, none of which would be uh, true nor wondrous were it not for the resurrection of Jesus. If the tomb is not in fact empty, the things that we're about to look at have no bearing on our lives. With that in mind, let's read this passage together in its fullness and then come back and, and work our way through it from the inside out. Verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's enough here for a three-month sermon series. And maybe somewhere in the future we'll, we'll do that and, and dig deeper into this treasure chest and, and look at the many jewels, the phrases, the words, the truths, the realities that are found in these three brief verses. And yet, for the purpose of this morning, I, I simply want to draw our attention to three things. So, so parents, if you're in that place where you're trying to corral your, your kiddos as we're working through the Bible together, just keep in mind three things. I just want to walk out of here with three things on my mind, hopefully having seeped down into my heart and affecting the way I live my very life. All three of which are inextricably connected to the empty tomb. Three things that can only be experienced, again, verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The first of the three is hope. 
Now, my guess is that most of us probably aren't surprised to hear that, as hope is one of the two things that we most readily identify with the resurrection of Jesus. There's resurrection power, the power of God in triumphing over death, hell, and the grave. And then there's resurrection hope, the hope that's ours because the tomb is empty. Paul talks about that kind of hope in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, another um, passage that oftentimes gets preached on Sundays like these. Paul, uh, Peter presents us with this, this idea of resurrection hope, and he does so in, in two very different ways. For one, he says that the Christian has been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's talking about the hope that comes in and through the new birth, what theologians refer to as the doctrine of regeneration, being born again. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were, here it is, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, following the prince of the power of the air, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Thankfully, Paul goes on to say in that very same chapter, but God, being rich in mercy, here's the good news of the gospel, because of the great love with which he loved us, even, here it is, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, Paul says, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul says it more concisely in his letter to the church at Colossae. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 and you, Paul says, who were, here it is, dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made what? Alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's good Friday language. Many of us, would connect those dots, this idea of being born again out of the, the deadness of our trespasses into this life in Christ. Many of us would connect that with the cross of Jesus, but perhaps not the empty tomb. This being made alive together with Christ is what Peter calls being born again, an act in which God imparts spiritual life to we who would otherwise be spiritually dead and, and Peter understands that with this imparting of spiritual life comes hope, a living hope. That as we are made alive through God's imparting of spiritual life to us, so a hope within us too is brought to life. No longer dead in our trespasses. No longer Ephesians 2.12, having no hope and without God in the world. An experiential hope in Christ that's alive and well within us. 
It's one of the evidences that we've truly experienced the new birth. A living hope because of a living Christ. The tomb now empty. So that one of the first questions that I would ask this morning is, do you know the experience, and I'm talking subjectively here, the experience of hope that's awakened in the hearts of those who belong to Christ? As Peter says, the Christian has been born again to a living hope. But it's not just a subjective hope within us, but to an objective hope outside of us. The hope of a future inheritance being kept for us in heaven. Notice that Peter says that we're not only born again to a living inside of us hope, but born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 4. That to be born into a family is to become an heir. And to become an heir is, is to receive at some point the family inheritance. And so it is with those who are born again. All the privileges, all the blessings of heaven laid up for the children of God. And this too, Peter says, verse 3, is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That because the tomb is empty, we can know hope in a couple of different ways. We can know the born-again experience of hope awakened in our hearts. And we can know the hope of an inheritance being kept for us in heaven, outside of us, objectively, future. The message of Easter, it's a message of hope, resurrection, hope. But hope is not the only thing born out of the reality of the empty tomb, as Peter draws our attention not only to hope, but to humility. This might be a strange thing to consider on Easter Sunday. Again, we're we're accustomed to thinking about hope when we think of the empty tomb and perhaps power as well when we consider that Jesus is no longer in that tomb. But humility might seem like a strange connection to make at first glance. But I want to present us with a question. How does this new birth that Peter talks about happen for anyone who's experienced it? He answers that question for us in verse 3. According to his, God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You didn't cause yourself to be born again if you are, in fact, born again. I didn't cause myself to be born again. He has caused us to be born again, and he has done so. Peter says, not just according to his mercy, but according to his great mercy. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, there it is, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The new birth, it's not something that our flesh produces. It's not something that our will produces. The new birth is something that God produces. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is, here it is, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That if we have any hope of, of seeing God's kingdom, if we have any hope of that inheritance, those riches of heaven that await the saints of God, we must 
be born again, Jesus says. We must experience the great miracle of the new birth. How does that great miracle happen? Well, Jesus goes on to say in John chapter 3, just a few verses later, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it It comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. No exceptions. A couple days ago, I sent out an email mentioning that we were going to meet inside rather than outside because just 48 hours ago, it was, if I'm remembering rightly, I believe on Saturday, an 80% chance of rain. Sunday, a 90% chance of rain. And Monday, a 70% chance of rain. Sitting right there in the middle, Easter Sunday, uh, of this storm that was supposed to hit the 30269 zip code. There there was, I think, a sliver, a window of a few hours where it said cloudy. And and that was the tiny hope. But I believe that was when we were all sleeping last night as I looked at it on Friday just a couple of days ago. What's going on right outside these walls right now? Sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. Like, we could have done this outside. We didn't know. We didn't know with weather.com. We couldn't predict the wind that blows where it wishes. Being born again is like that, Jesus says. Being born of the Spirit, it's an unpredictable miracle of God. Where the wind of God's sovereign grace and mercy blows in our direction awakening us from spiritual death to the hope of life in Christ. It's not something we merit. It's not something we deserve. It's not something we cause. Verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, God has caused us, according to his great mercy, to be born again to a living hope and inheritance. If I could say it in the opposite way, apart from the wind of God's great mercy blowing in our direction, we'd still be dead in our trespasses. No living hope within. No inheritance that comes with being an heir. Already Peter's given us enough to humble us all. And yet notice that he goes even further in his efforts to show us that pridefulness and conceit have no place among the redeemed. As he declares, too, that not only has God caused us to be born again according to his great mercy, but, too, that we're being guarded through faith. How? Verse 5, by God's power. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Not only is our inheritance being kept in heaven by God, but we ourselves are being kept by God's power. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. How silly for pridefulness to have its place in the church. How silly for arrogance and conceit to have its place in the church. That I became a child of God is owing to his great mercy That I remain a child of God is owing to his great power. All of this, again, verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
that because the tomb is empty, we can not only know the born-again experience of hope awakened in our hearts where there was once only hopelessness and despair, as well as the hope of an inheritance being kept for us in heaven, but we can, we can know the kind of humility that frees us from enslavement to the fragile human ego, which is what pride is. As C.S. Lewis describes humility in contrast to pride, I've shared this before. He says, humility is feeling the infinite relief of having once, uh, for once, got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all your life. Do you know what it is to experience that kind of relief? The kind of freedom from the fragile human ego that can only be found in the risen Christ. Stand in humble amazement at the winds of God's great mercy this morning. Stand in humble amazement at the wonder of God's keeping power. The message of Easter is not only a message of hope, but of humility. Empty tomb purchased humility for the people of God. Which brings me to the third thing born out of the the reality of the empty tomb as Peter describes it here. Drawing our attention not only to hope and humility, but the joy of a life lived with a heart of praise. Notice that Peter gets caught up in a hallelujah moment before he's even able to put pen to paper to record all of these glorious truths. He just can't help himself. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He opens up with a song before he preaches a sermon. It's one of the the many doxologies found throughout the scriptures. One of the many hallelujah moments in response to God's goodness, glory, and grace. The word that that we translate blessed here, it's the the Greek word eulogetos. It's where we get our English word eulogy. A eulogy being the singing of the praises of another. It's what we were made for. To sing the praises of the one true God. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter says, without whom the Lord Jesus, we would have nothing to sing about. This is not just generic God language. No, this is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus that we can even have access to the Father. These glorious truths representing these glorious realities with which Peter presents us, they're meant to fill God's people with God's fullness, causing our hearts to sing. The heart sings of that in which it delights. That which we love, we must praise. Otherwise, our joy is left incomplete. I believe I may have shared this in the past as well. C.S. Lewis, in his reflection on the Psalms, he says, "I, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It it is not out of compliment, he says, that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. There's a reason that our hearts leap as sports fans when we stand in the arena and we cheer. As lovers of, of music, when we listen to our favorite artist, musician, or band, 
the joy is, is made complete when we sing along, when we get it out of us. We were made to sing. Theology, it's always, always, always meant to lead to doxology. Heart-filled praise, and that includes the doctrine of the resurrection. I know that, that most of us know the doctrine of the resurrection here. But do we know the doctrine of the resurrection here? What is it that awakens Peter's heart so that he gets caught up in a hallelujah moment? The empty tomb purchased miracle of the new birth, being born again. The experience of living hope that's, that's awakened in the hearts of those who belong to Christ. The future hope of an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that awaits the people of God. The wonder of the unpredictable winds of God's great mercy. The strong arm of, of God's guarding, keeping, sustaining power. All of these glorious realities, ours, again, verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For some, perhaps today is the day of salvation, the day that those unpredictable winds of God's great mercy blow your way. Know that Jesus Christ is the glorious, eternal, risen Son of God. He promises to receive anyone who comes to Him. He promises to forgive all who trust in Him. Repent of your sins. Turn to Jesus for the forgiveness that can only be found in Him. Run to the empty tomb. See the penalty for your sin paid in full. Cast yourself on him for his promised mercy and you will be saved. Know the hope. Know the humility, the freedom from the fragile human ego. Know what it is to have the truest of songs born in your heart that must be sung and if you are a Christian, the empty tomb, it invites us not into a life of hopelessness and despair, but a life of hope. The empty tomb invites us not into a life of arrogance and conceit, but a life of humility. The empty tomb invites us not into a life of cold, dead orthodoxy, but a life of heart-filled praise. All of these things, evidences that we've truly experienced the new birth, which is ours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I can't say it enough this morning. Hope, humility, and heartfelt praise, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh of Easter Sunday. How can we trust that, that such glorious gifts could ever be ours? And the answer is because not even the grave could hold Jesus' body down.